Hello, and welcome to Relevant History. I'm Dan Toller. This is the second episode in a series about the American Revolution. If you want to get the full backstory, you may want to start with episode 52, An Accidental Revolution. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the show and share it with your friends. And if you want to support the show, there's a link for the Patreon page in the description. For $5 a month, you get access to Dan's War College, a monthly video series where I talk about military units and tactics, particular battles, and all things military-related. This month, I'll be talking about the history of balloons in warfare, for reasons that will be obvious to anyone listening today and not at all obvious to people listening in the future. Hello, future people. Anyway, where we left off at the end of the last episode, 13 North American British colonies have just declared independence from Great Britain. The Continental Army under George Washington has driven the British Army out of Boston and forced both their army and the navy to relocate to Nova Scotia. The first year of the American War for Independence had gone well for the Patriot cause. But the signing of the Declaration of Independence has changed everything. The opening months of the war are more of a heavily armed protest, and a political solution has seemed like the most likely possibility. King George could make some concessions on trade and taxation, and the colonists could go back to being loyal British subjects. But as of July 1776, that is no longer an option. Either the colonies will win their independence outright, or the British army will crush the rebellion by force of arms. For now, the British face a major challenge. They have no significant armed forces in any of the rebellious colonies. The main British army in North America is stuck in Canada, and invading southwards into New England via land would be a logistical nightmare. Instead, British General William Howe and Admiral Richard Howe, yes, they're brothers, decide on an invasion via New York. This makes sense for a couple of reasons. To begin with, the hotbed of the American Revolution is in New England. New York is close enough to New England for the harbor there to be used to support military operations in theater. It's much closer to the action than Philadelphia or Baltimore. Furthermore, New York Harbor is a freakishly good natural harbor, considered by some to be the best in the world. It's that harbor that would ultimately allow New York to surpass Philadelphia as America's most populous city and never look back. And in the control of the British military, New York Harbor can bring in any number of troops and supplies that the government decides to send. Control over New York Harbor is essential to both sides. If the Americans can keep it, they'll deny the British a foothold in the 13 colonies and force the British to mount a difficult invasion from Canada or accept American independence as a fait accompli. If the British can take it, they'll have a logistical hub through which to bring the full might of the British Empire to bear on their American colonies. George Washington is well aware that the Howe brothers are planning to attack New York. It's just that obvious of a target. 
But defending New York will be much more difficult than pushing the British out of Boston. At Boston, the Americans were able to occupy elevated positions that surrounded both the city and the harbor. This negated the most powerful tool in the British toolkit, the Royal Navy. At New York, there are no large hills overlooking the harbor where the Americans can position artillery. This means that any American defenses will be vulnerable to the powerful guns of the British fleet. New York also offers many avenues for attack. New York Harbor is bounded by Manhattan Island to the north, the mainland of New Jersey to the northwest, Staten Island to the southwest, and Long Island to the east. All the British have to do is sail their fleet into the harbor, and they can threaten American positions in any of those areas. Along the same lines, there are multiple areas where the British could potentially land troops and create a beachhead. Long Island in particular is a real problem for George Washington. It extends eastward from modern-day Brooklyn 118 miles out to Montauk. British troops landed anywhere on that island could then march to Brooklyn and take partial control of New York Harbor. So whereas the terrain at Boston had favored the Americans, the terrain at New York favors the British. For anyone who has their eyes handy as well as their ears, I've linked a modern map of New York City in the description. For those of you who aren't from the American Northeast, the areas that are now Brooklyn and Queens are at the western end of Long Island. And keep in mind that New York City in 1776 means southern Manhattan. Harlem and the Bronx are a mixture of farms and undeveloped forests. Brooklyn is a small town. Today's city streets in Queens are rural farmland, and Staten Island is just an island with a few cows on it. It's worth noting that Congress doesn't demand that George Washington try to hold New York City indefinitely. From a military perspective, it might even make sense to concede the landing to the British and take the fight further inland where the Royal Navy isn't a threat. But defending New York isn't just a military act, it's a political one. If these 13 colonies, now states, are going to fight together as one continental army, that army needs to defend all 13 states. It can't cede part of New York in order to spare the lives of soldiers from other states. At least it can't do that without a fight. Washington begins fortifying Manhattan before the British arrive, ironically quartering his troops in many of the city's private mansions. He's also able to commandeer the homes of Loyalist citizens who have fled New York altogether. But even as he's digging in, Washington has to pull together an army that consists almost entirely of rank amateurs. In his book, 1776, American historian David McCullough writes, quote, New battalions had arrived from Connecticut, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, and still more were expected from Maryland and Delaware. All were urgently needed, but they also compounded the threat of regional animosity and discord, which Washington still feared might tear the army and the country apart. 
We have nothing, my dear sir, to depend on but the protection of a kind of providence and unanimity among ourselves, he wrote to John Adams from his Broadway headquarters. Furthermore, as he knew, discipline was hardly improved, and too many of the new troops were raw recruits as unruly as those of the summer before. Some who were lauded as shining examples of patriotism looked hardly fit for battle, like the Connecticut unit comprised entirely of aged gentlemen. When they were ordered to New York, reads an old account, this company was the first that reached the place of rendezvous. They were 24 in number, and their united ages reached 1,000. They were all married men and left behind 159 children and grandchildren. Nor did the look and manner of Washington's New England troops necessarily inspire confidence among those from other colonies. In the stilted phrasing of a young captain from Pennsylvania, Alexander Graydon, the appearance of things was not much calculated to excite sanguine expectations in the mind of the sober observer. To Graydon, who in what he wrote did little to conceal his feelings of superiority, the Yankees were a miserably constituted, unwarlike lot, who did not entirely come up to the ideas we had formed of the heroes of Lexington and Bunker Hill. Most officers were still indistinguishable from their men. Deportment seemed altogether absent. Not until the arrival of the men from Marblehead under Colonel John Glover did Captain Graydon see any New England troops that met his approval. But even in this regiment, he noted, there were a number of Negroes, which to persons unaccustomed to such associations had a disagreeable, degrading effect. And quote, there's a lot going on here. Obviously different attitudes about race, other regional differences, cultural differences, and there are religious differences. Many of the New England men are shocked by what they see as rampant immorality. The New England colonies were founded by the Puritans, remember, and the Congregationalist Church is still the official state religion. Most of the rank-and-file troops have never been more than a few miles from their farms. Soldiers write home in amazement about the city's many churches of many denominations. New York even has a synagogue. And while laws against prostitution are strictly enforced in New England, New York's Red Light District employs around 500 prostitutes, approximately 2% of the city's total population. Somehow, George Washington manages to keep the New Englanders, New Yorkers, Pennsylvanians, and others working together. In part, he's able to do this by setting an example of strict integrity. He famously refuses to accept any payment for his services as commander-in-chief, although he does open an expense account for himself and his entourage that includes large payments for liquor. But these same expense accounts also show, quote, Fifteen shillings cash paid a beggar by the general's order. End quote. So while all these men from different states might not trust each other, they trust their commander because he's known for his character. Even so, there is a plot to assassinate the commander-in-chief. In early June, several people, including David Matthews, the mayor of New York, are arrested on charges of planning to kill George Washington. Officially, little comes of it. 
The only person to be convicted is Thomas Hickey, one of Washington's bodyguards who claims that he only got involved in order to cheat some loyalists out of their money. He's hanged on June 28th, but unofficially the effects go much further. Patriot mobs tar and feather several other accused conspirators, and dozens of other loyalist citizens are hauled out of their homes and paraded through the streets. As a result, hundreds of more loyalists pack up their belongings and flee New York, hoping for the arrival of the British fleet. They won't have long to wait. On July 2nd, 1776, the Howe brothers arrive and begin landing men on Staten Island at the southwest side of New York Harbor. Along with their fleet, they have an army of 15,000 men, with another 10,000 still en route from Europe. Many of these troops are British regulars, but there are also thousands of German mercenaries, many of whom are veterans of the Central European Theater of the Seven Years' War. This is actually one way to tell whether a revolutionary war movie is historically accurate, by the way. Uh, in most cases, if the only British you see are redcoats, it's likely that the costume people didn't do their research because in most revolutionary war battles, there is a whole lot of Prussian blue uniforms on the British side of the battlefield. These German mercenaries are often inaccurately described as Hessians, which implies that they come from the Duchy of Hesse, when they come from all over Germany. So, yes, while many of them are Hessians, I will defy convention and continue to call them Germans rather than Hessians. Anyway, Washington has a force of around 20,000 men between Continental Army and Colonial Militia units. But he can't just keep them all in Manhattan. He'd largely be conceding the harbor, and his entire army would be vulnerable to encirclement. So he split his forces between Manhattan and Long Island, with a reserve force on the New Jersey side of the Hudson River to protect the western flank. This covers all possible points of attack, but it means that the American forces are divided up. If the British use their entire force, they can attack any given American position with superior numbers. That said, the Americans do have the advantage of being on the defensive. They've been able to prepare. They've established artillery batteries on Governor's Island in the harbor and at the south end of Manhattan in the area now known as Battery Park. Washington has ordered derelict ships sunk to block the East River between Long Island and Manhattan. He's built a fort at the north end of Manhattan called Fort Washington to keep the British from sailing north and attacking the Americans from there. And on Long Island, he's dispatched General Nathaniel Green to build a line of fortifications and trenches around Brooklyn. If the Americans can't hold New York, they'll at least make the British bleed for it. Their spirits are also bolstered a few days later by news of the Declaration of Independence. These men are no longer British subjects fighting for their traditional rights. They're fighting for the existence of a new country. Their own country. On July 12, 1776, two British ships sail up the Hudson River in a show of force. They take some fire from American batteries on Governor's Island and Manhattan, 
but they return fire as they sail north of Manhattan and occupy the village of Terrytown. This cuts Washington's army off from resupply from the north, and it effectively establishes British control of the lower Hudson River. Remarkably, only six people are killed in the action. A team of American artillerymen whose cannon explodes. The inability of the Americans to inflict any casualties comes down to poor training and preparation, as well as the fact that many soldiers are apparently drunk. Worse, the officers stand idly by while their men fire inaccurately. Washington is disgusted, and his general orders after the incident include the following. Quote, Such unsoldierly conduct must grieve every good officer, and give the enemy a mean opinion of the army, as nothing shows the brave and good soldier more than in the case of alarms, coolly and calmly repairing to his post, and there waiting his orders. Whereas a weak curiosity at such a time makes a man look mean and contemptible. End quote. Thankfully for the Americans, they'll have the opportunity to get themselves in order. King George has given the Howe brothers authority to negotiate, and William Howe in particular is sympathetic with the colonists. At one point, he even told Parliament that he would never lead an army against the American colonists. But he's also a capable and ambitious officer. You may remember him from one of the episodes on the Seven Years' War, where he led British troops in a daring attack on Quebec at the Battle of the Plains of Abraham. So, when offered command of all British troops from Florida to Nova Scotia, he had jumped at the opportunity. Howe twice sends a messenger to Washington offering to negotiate. But the message isn't addressed to General Washington, just George Washington Esquire. So Washington refuses to respond. Now, this might sound petty, but there's a good reason for Washington's stubbornness. He's not just George Washington Esquire. He's a general in the Continental Army and demands to be addressed as such. In other words, if General Howe wants to talk to him, he's going to have to acknowledge him as a real general and, by extension, acknowledge the Continental Army as a real army, not just a bunch of rebels. Washington does agree to meet with one of Howe's subordinates, but the Howe brothers' negotiating authority is limited to being authorized to declare amnesty for rebels who lay down their arms. So, basically, they could let the colonial army go home without facing criminal charges, but that's about it. Washington is not willing to negotiate on these terms, so William Howe prepares an attack. For the next six weeks, British ships continue flooding into the harbor and bringing in more troops. As more and more forces pour in, a fleet of 400 British ships will ultimately fill New York Harbor. One American defender looks out on the forest of masts and says it looks like all of London has come to New York. On August 22nd, General Howe finally decides to attack. And when he initially lands 15,000 troops on Long Island, southeast of the American defenses, Washington receives bad intelligence, saying that it's only a few thousand men and that it's a fake attack, it's a diversion. The real attack, he believes, will be on Manhattan. So 
he only dispatches another 1,500 men or so to defend against the attack on Long Island. But Nathaniel Green, the general in command there, is severely ill with a fever, so Washington dispatches Israel Putnam to Long Island, while Washington himself will command the overall defense of New York from his headquarters in Manhattan. And to put things in perspective, let's remember that while George Washington is commander-in-chief, this is his first time leading an army in battle. He's led a squad-sized unit in the French and Indian War, and he's overseen frontier warfare with small units. He's even led the siege of Boston. But at 44 years old, George Washington, top commander of the military of the United Colonies, is about to fight his first real battle. Unfortunately for Washington, the American positions are compromised almost from the start. The outer defenses on Long Island are arranged along a ring of hills called the Brooklyn Heights. For unclear reasons that are still controversial, one of the passes between two of the hills is only guarded by five colonial officers. This is an old Native American trail that's rarely used, but local loyalists of Dutch extraction have tipped off the British and the American officers don't even run away or sound an alarm because they think the approaching column of troops are fellow Americans. So without firing a shot, British troops under the command of General Henry Clinton and Lord Charles Cornwallis are able to get inside the outer ring of American defenses in the wee hours of the morning on August 27th. At 9 a.m., George Washington himself arrives in Brooklyn. Realizing that the attack on Long Island is the real deal and not a distraction, he brings in more troops, but it's already too late. With their outer defenses compromised, the undisciplined American troops fall back under British fire. There are exceptions. At one point, 250 Maryland soldiers fight a desperate rearguard action against 2,000 British troops, and all but a dozen of them are killed while buying time for other American troops to retreat. Washington watches helplessly through a spyglass from Brooklyn Heights and supposedly says, Good God, what brave fellows I must this day lose. In the evening, General Howe orders his men to halt their advance and start digging trenches. While the Americans have gotten the worst of the fighting, the British have also taken losses, and Howe is preparing for a siege. The armies face off for a few more days, but in the wee hours of August 30, 1776, George Washington pulls what the kids call a pro-gamer move. He retreats. Realizing that his men are hemmed in and that his path back to Manhattan depends on a few sunken ships continuing to block the East River, he orders all of his men to row back to Manhattan to continue the defense there. They take all kinds of precautions to make the retreat in secret. Wagon wheels and the wheels of the cannons are wrapped in rags to keep them quiet. The ferry boats shuttle the men back and forth without running lights, and the men themselves are under strict orders to remain silent. The last men out, meanwhile, are doing the opposite. They're furiously stoking campfires and making loud conversation up to the last minute to 
make the British think the Americans are still in their camp. Remarkably, the Continental Army doesn't lose a single soldier or piece of equipment in their retreat. And this much is important. Washington understands that now the British have effectively taken New York, it's going to be a long war. The worst thing that can happen for the American revolutionaries is for their army to be captured in the field. The British Empire can raise army after army after army. If an American army is captured, the war is over. And what Washington will do over and over again in this war is retreat as necessary to preserve his army. He's often criticized for being overly cautious, but he understands revolutionary warfare, and he understands that keeping an army in the field is the only way to achieve American independence. Again, he's not just thinking of military strategy. He's thinking of politics and how the defeat of the army would affect the country. Almost 200 years later, Chairman Mao will follow his example in China, preserving his revolutionary army at all costs, even at the expense of sacrificing all the major cities. I'm going to go back to Political Science 101 and the definition of a state. A state is an entity that has established a monopoly on the legitimate use of force in a given territory. The Continental Army is an implement of the use of force. Washington understands that as long as the Continental Army exists, the cause of American independence is alive. Without it, the words in the Declaration of Independence are empty. Britain has a monopoly on force, and so King George III and Parliament are the state. But with an active Continental Army, there is no monopoly on the use of force, and the Continental Congress can make a legitimate claim to sovereignty. That is, Congress has a credible claim that they own a monopoly on the use of force in the colonies, and that the British use of force is illegitimate. Anyway, while George Washington has saved his army and given the British a bloody nose, he's lost control of New York. And with the British in control of both Staten Island and Long Island, as well as blocking off supplies from the Hudson River in the north, the Americans on Manhattan are increasingly in danger of getting cut off. The Battle of Long Island is controversial. Some historians praise Washington's speedy nighttime retreat. Others will criticize him for the poor performance and discipline of the Continental Army. Some praise General Howe for taking Long Island with the loss of fewer than 100 British lives. Others criticizing him for stopping the advance and digging in, giving Washington the chance to escape. What is not controversial is the aftermath. With the loss of Long Island, Manhattan is an island under siege. On September 15, 1776, 4,000 British and German troops make landfall at Kipps Bay on Manhattan itself. Their landing is covered by a barrage of cannon fire from the British fleet, which annihilates the Americans' flimsy wooden shore defenses. With his men retreating in panic under the first salvo of British musket fire, George Washington rides within a hundred yards of the British line, urging his men to hold firm and even beating some of his officers who are panicking. But it's no use. 
While the Continental Army will win a small battle against the British the next day in Upper Manhattan, uh, providing a much-needed morale boost, the subsequent days and weeks will bring a series of failures. Washington will first try to maneuver north of Manhattan Island across the Harlem River and keep his army connected with New England. But Howe outmaneuvers him and defeats him at White Plains, forcing him back first to northern Manhattan, then across the Hudson River to New Jersey. In the process, 3,000 American troops are forced to surrender while trying to defend Fort Washington on November 16th. On November 20th, Fort Lee on the New Jersey side of the Hudson also falls to the British, and the Continental Army is forced to withdraw further south. With control of New York now secure, General Howe sends 6,000 men northeast with General Clinton to occupy the port of Newport, Rhode Island, and dispatches Cornwallis south to chase after Washington. Meanwhile, Washington's army has lost nearly 90% of its men, with most of them simply deserting and returning to their homes. With only around 3,000 men in fighting form, it's barely even an army anymore. While Washington does eventually receive 1,000 reinforcements from Pennsylvania and another 4,000 from New Jersey, he's still leading a total of only around 8,000 men. Almost as bad, Washington's second-in-command and the hero of the 1775 South Carolina campaign, General Charles Lee, is captured in the process of recruiting the 4,000 New Jersey men. Returning to McCullough's account, quote, In an inexplicable lapse of judgment, General Lee had spent the previous night of December 12th separated from his troops, stopping at a tavern of about three miles away at Basking Ridge, for what reason is not known. With Lee was a personal guard of 15 officers and men. The next morning, in low spirits and no apparent hurry, Lee sat at a table in his dressing gown attending to routine paperwork, then took time to write a letter to General Gates for no other purpose than to blame Washington for all of his troubles and for the woeful state of affairs in general. Entrenou, a certain great man is damnable deficient, Lee told Gates. He has thrown me into a situation where I have my choice of difficulties. If I stay in this province, I risk myself and my army, and if I do not stay, the province is lost forever. In short, unless something which I do not expect turns up, we are lost. It was just after ten when a swarm of British cavalry appeared suddenly at the end of the lane. They were a scouting party of 25 horsemen commanded by Colonel William Harcourt, who had once served under Lee in Portugal. They had been sent out from Trenton by Cornwallis to gather intelligence on Lee's motions and situation. At Basking Ridge, a loyal localist had given them the answer. From the end of the lane to the tavern was a distance of about a hundred yards. Six of the horsemen, led by Lieutenant Bannister Tarleton, came at a gallop. In minutes they had the building surrounded, killed two of the guards, and scattered the rest. I ordered my men to fire into the house through every window and door, and cut up as many of the guard as they could, Tarleton later wrote. Some of those inside fired back. Then the owner of a tavern, a woman named White, appeared at the door. Screaming that Lee was inside, she begged for mercy. 
Tarleton shouted that he would burn the building unless Lee gave himself up. In a few minutes, Lee appeared and surrendered, saying he trusted he would be treated as a gentleman. A young American lieutenant who had been inside managed to escape, James Wilkinson, would later describe how a cheer went up among Lee's captors and a trumpet sounded. Then off they dashed with their prize. The unfortunate Lee, hatless, still in his dressing gown and slippers, mounted on Wilkinson's horse, which happened to have been tethered at the door. The astonishing raid had taken no more than 15 minutes. End quote. Lee is taken into captivity and will not be paroled until early 1778. For the Continental Army, things look bleak. In the course of a few months, they've not only lost New York, but been sent on the run. With winter setting in, General Howe establishes a series of outposts throughout New Jersey, laying the ground for a push south to Philadelphia the following year. Thomas Paine, the same polemicist who wrote Common Sense, is with Washington's army during the retreat. On December 23, 1776, he publishes the first part of a work called The American Crisis, a series of pamphlets meant to inspire both the troops and the regular people. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's really long and, well, it's been out of copyright for like 200 years, so you can read it for free online, but... Here is the opening passage. Quote, These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands by it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered, yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything its value. Heaven knows how to put a proper price upon its goods, and it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly rated. Britain, with an army to enforce her tyranny, has declared that she has a right not only to tax, but to bind us in all cases whatsoever. And if being bound in that manner is not slavery, then is there not such a thing as slavery upon earth? Even the expression is impious, for so unlimited a power can belong only to God. Whether the independence of the continent was declared too soon or delayed too long, I will not now enter into as an argument. My own simple opinion is that had it been eight months earlier, it would have been much better. We did not make a proper use of last winter, Neither could we, while we were in a dependent state. However, the fault, if it were one, was all our own. We have none to blame but ourselves. But no great deal is lost yet. All that Howe has been doing for this past month is rather a revenge than a conquest, which the spirit of the Jerseys a year ago would quickly have repulsed, and which time and a little resolution will soon recover. I have as little superstition in me as any man living, but my secret opinion has ever been, and still is, that God Almighty will not give up a people to military destruction, or leave them unsupportedly to perish, who have so earnestly and so repeatedly sought to avoid the calamities of war, 
by every decent method which wisdom could invent. Neither have I so much of the infidel into me as to suppose that he has relinquished the government of the world and given us up to the care of devils. And as I do not, I cannot see on what grounds the king of Britain can look up to heaven for help against us. A common murderer, a highwayman or a housebreaker, has as good a pretense as he. Tis surprising to see how rapidly a panic will sometimes run through a country. All nations and ages have been subject to them. Britain has trembled like an egg at the report of a French fleet of flat-bottomed boats, and in the 14th century the whole English army, after ravaging the kingdom of France, was driven back like men petrified with fear. And this brave exploit was performed by a few broken forces collected and headed by a woman, Joan of Arc. Would that heaven might inspire some Jersey maid to spirit up her countrymen and save her fair fellows sufferers from ravage and ravishment. Yet panics, in some cases, have their uses. They produce as much good as hurt. Their duration is always short. The mind soon grows through them and acquires a firmer habit than before. But their peculiar advantage is that they are the touchstones of sincerity and hypocrisy and bring things and men to light which might otherwise have lain forever undiscovered. In fact, they have the same effect on secret traitors which an imaginary apparition would have upon a private murderer. They sift out the hidden thoughts of man and hold them up in public to the world. Many a disguised Tory has lately shown his head and shall penitentially solemnize with curses the day on which Howde arrived upon the Delaware. As I was with the troops at Fort Lee and marched with them to the edge of Pennsylvania, I am well acquainted with many circumstances which those who live at a distance know but little or nothing of. Our situation there was exceedingly cramped, the place being a narrow neck of land between the North River and the Hackensack. Our force was inconsiderable, being not one-fourth so great as Howe could bring against us. We had no army at hand to have relieved the garrison, had we shut ourselves up and stood on our defense. Our ammunition, light artillery, and the best part of our stores had been removed on the apprehension that Howe would endeavor to penetrate the Jerseys, in which case Fort Lee could be of no use to us. For it must occur to every thinking man, whether in the army or not, that these kinds of field forts are only for temporary purposes, and last in use no longer than the enemy directs his force against the particular object which such forts are raised to defend. Such was our situation and condition at Fort Lee on the morning of the 20th of November, when an officer arrived with information that the enemy with 200 boats had landed about seven miles above. Major General Nathaniel Green, who commanded the garrison, immediately ordered them under arms and sent express to General Washington at the town of Hackensack, distant by the way of the ferry, six miles. Our first object was to secure the bridge over the Hackensack, which laid up the river between the enemy and us, about six miles from us and three from them. General Washington arrived in about three quarters of an hour and marched at the head of the troops towards the bridge, which place I expected we should have a brush for. However, they did not choose to dispute it with us, and the greatest part of our troops went over the bridge, the rest over the ferry, except some which paused at a mill on a small creek between the bridge and the ferry and made their way through some marshy grounds up to the town of Hackensack and there past the river. 
we brought off as much baggage as the wagons could contain. The rest was lost. The simple object was to bring off the garrison and march them on till they could be strengthened by the Jersey or Pennsylvania militia so as to be enabled to make a stand. We stayed four days at Newark, collected our outposts with some of the Jersey militia, and marched out twice to meet the enemy, on being informed that they were advancing, though our numbers were greatly inferior to theirs. Howe, in my opinion, committed a great error in generalship in not throwing a body of forces across from Staten Island through Amboy, by which means he might have seized all our stores at Brunswick and intercepted our march into Pennsylvania. But if we believe the power of hell to be limited, we must likewise believe that their agents are under some providential control. I shall not now attempt to give all the particulars of our retreat to the Delaware. Suffice it for the present to say that both officers and men, though greatly harassed and fatigued, frequently without rest, covering, or provision, the inevitable consequences of a long retreat, bore it with a manly and martial spirit. All their wishes centered in one, which was that the country would turn out and help them to drive the enemy back. Voltaire has remarked that King William never appeared to full advantage but in difficulties and in action. The same remark may be made on General Washington, for the character fits him. There is a natural firmness in some minds which cannot be unlocked by trifles, but which, when unlocked, discovers a cabinet of fortitude, and I reckon it among those kind of public blessings which we do not immediately see, that God hath blessed him with uninterrupted health, and given him a mind that can even flourish upon care. End quote. Payne then goes on a long screed against loyalist citizens, explains why they're all terrible people, and suggests that Congress should confiscate their belongings to fund the continuing war. But if you're reading between the lines here, it's apparent that things are going very badly for the revolutionaries. Thomas Paine, a rational Enlightenment man, is reduced to arguing that Yes, we've lost a series of battles, and the British have kicked us out of New York, but they won't win because God won't let them. In one sense, he's right. Most of the remaining men's enlistments will expire on New Year's Day. In the current dire situation, after a series of defeats, how many will be willing to continue the fight? It would take a miracle to save the American Revolution. Fortunately for the revolutionaries, George Washington is cooking up just such a miracle. Remember how General Howe has dispatched garrisons of German troops throughout New Jersey? Well, those troops are all cozy in their winter quarters, convinced that the Americans will follow the military convention of the time and stay at camp in Pennsylvania until spring. It's not an unreasonable expectation. Throughout most of human history, armies have gone into winter quarters and stopped campaigning for the season. Keeping an army in the field is hard enough in good weather, never mind in the cold and the snow. But there's a flip side to that. If you can pull off a winter attack, you can catch your enemy with their pants down, which is exactly what Washington does in the wee hours of Christmas night, 1776. 
His goal is to make a surprise night attack on the German garrison at Trenton, New Jersey, which sits on the east bank of the Delaware River. The original plan is to move the army across from Pennsylvania at two locations, one a few miles north of Trenton and another several miles south at Burlington, New Jersey. But one thing people don't realize is how narrow the Delaware River is at Trenton. I blame the famous painting of Washington crossing the Delaware, where the river looks far wider and more impressive than it actually is where Washington crossed. The painter, Emanuel Lutz, was from Philadelphia, where the Delaware River is well over a mile wide. But upriver at Trenton, the crossing is only about 300 yards. The water is treacherous and full of ice chunks, and even further downstream at Burlington, where the river is a little wider, the crossing is impossible. But in this more narrow part of the Delaware, the Continental Army is just barely able to cross. Washington crosses with 2,400 men, 100 horses, 18 cannons, plus food, ammunition, and other supplies, hauled on 60-foot flat-bottomed boats that had been constructed to haul iron ore. In the treacherous conditions, it takes 10 hours to ferry the men across, and they don't form up until it's nearly dawn, and they're still about 9 miles north of Trenton. 16-year-old John Greenwood, a private in Washington's army, would later write about the experience, quote, it rained, hailed, snowed, and froze. When I turned my face to the fire, my back would be freezing. However, by turning myself round and round, I kept myself from perishing. I recollect very well that at one time, when we halted on the road, I sat down on a stump of a tree and was so benumbed with cold that I wanted to go to sleep. Had I been passed unnoticed, I should have frozen to death without knowing it. End quote. Conditions are so miserable and the hour so late that George Washington nearly calls off the attack. It'll be light out by the time his men arrive at Trenton, and they're likely to lose the element of surprise. But he decides that ferrying his men back to Pennsylvania would be more dangerous. If the Germans become aware of his army's presence, they could attack when it's in the middle of crossing and capture any men left on the New Jersey side. For better or for worse, the only way forward is to attack. The men march five miles from Johnson's Ferry to Birmingham before splitting into two columns, with one marching directly southeast along the riverbank and another cutting further east to attack Trenton from the north, so they'll be hitting Trenton from two directions. Conditions are so awful that Two of the men freeze to death during the march, although they will end up being the only American fatalities of the day. At 8 a.m., the Americans arrive outside of Trenton. The German commander, Colonel Johann Rahl, had been warned by some of his lookouts that the Americans were crossing the river. But he had discounted it as a small scouting expedition, since the weather is so terrible that you'd have to try to be an idiot to try maneuvering a whole army, right? the Americans managed to get within a few hundred yards of town before being spotted. As they open up with cannon fire, 1,500 German troops scramble out of bed and into formation. 
when around 400 of them managed to form up on the village green and open fire on the Americans, Washington orders his men to charge with bayonets from 200 yards. The Americans only receive one volley before reaching the German lines, driving them back into town in a panic. Colonel Rawl is killed in the fighting, a steep price to pay for his miscalculation, and a running street-to-street fight continues to push the Germans back without an opportunity to regroup. There's a myth that the Germans are hung over from Christmas celebrations the night before, but this appears to be false. In his book, General George Washington, A Military Life, American author Edward G. Lengel writes, quote, The Germans were dazed and tired, but there is no truth to the legend claiming that they were helplessly drunk. They behaved very well, Washington told Congress, keeping up a constant retreating fire from behind houses. Had their commanders not failed them by refusing to order a proper watch, they might well have repulsed Washington's ragtag soldiers, who had trouble keeping formation as they advanced. End quote. As it happens, the Germans are driven back, and most of them end up in an orchard on the edge of town where they are subsequently surrounded and surrender. Of the 2,400 Americans who set off from Pennsylvania the previous evening, besides the two men who froze to death, Washington's army has suffered five wounded. Of the 1,500 German soldiers who had occupied Trenton, 22 are killed, 83 wounded, and around 800 are captured. The remainder retreat south in disorder. Washington has notched a win. And while the number of troops is small and the strategic importance of the victory is negligible, it's a win that Washington needed. It inspires the men and gives them the confidence to believe they can fight the British. From a morale perspective, it's a game-changer. It also puts General Howe on notice that the Americans can still fight, and that if the Delaware River freezes over and he's tempted to send his men towards Philadelphia during the winter, they will not go unopposed. This further complicates the British position since they are facing fierce resistance from local militias throughout New Jersey. Formerly a hotbed of loyalist sentiment, New Jersey public opinion has changed since the British sent in German troops to occupy the area. The German troops are mercenaries who are partially paid in loot, and they loot every town they pass through. Had Howe kept his Germans in New York and sent British redcoats to garrison New Jersey, there may well have been less resistance. Regardless, all of this allows Washington not just to win at Trenton, but to push for more gains. To do that, he has to execute two more, far less famous crossings of the Delaware River. And the second crossing is arguably more difficult than the first. There are more British and German troops to the north at Princeton and to the south at Mount Holly. These troops could order a counterattack, and it's critical for the Americans to secure the prisoners and loot they've captured. They have to not only get themselves back across to Pennsylvania, but transport the prisoners under guard. And to make things worse, against George Washington's orders, some of his men break into a captured rum and start celebrating, 
so a number of the American troops are drunk during the return journey, and several nearly drown when they fall out of their boats during the crossing. Following the victory and the withdrawal back to Pennsylvania, Washington is able to convince most of his men to sign on for another six weeks, enough to make one last push against the British. After spending a few days weathering out a storm and letting his men recuperate in Newtown, Pennsylvania, Washington crosses the Delaware a third time, this time taking 6,000 men at eight separate crossing points, some of which are frozen over enough for the men to cross the ice on foot. Meanwhile, General Howe has dispatched General Cornwallis south from northern New Jersey with 8,000 men. This brings the British force at Princeton, just 10 miles north of Trenton, to 10,000 British and German troops. They outnumber the Americans nearly two to one. But Cornwallis does not bring all of those men south to Trenton. He brings about half of them and leaves about half of them in Princeton. Washington dispatches troops along their route of march, and they stall the British advance. This gives the Americans some time to build some rudimentary defenses, and when the British arrive at Trenton early on January 2nd, they find Washington's men dug in on Assunpink Creek north of the town. In the ensuing fight, known both as the Battle of Assunpink Creek and the Second Battle of Trenton, Cornwallis orders his men to dig in and prepare an attack for the following morning. But Washington once again pulls an evasive maneuver, has his men wrap their cannon wheels and wagon wheels with cloth to silence them, and does an end run around the British. When Lord Cornwallis attacks Trenton in the morning, he finds the city completely undefended. He realizes what happened and urgently turns his army around and heads back north towards Princeton, but it's too late. George Washington's assault on Princeton is a hard-fought affair. Early in the fighting, an advance element of American troops clashes with a superior British force and is forced to draw back. The British capture their cannons and turn them back on the Americans. An American general, Hugh Mercer, a veteran of the Jacobite Rebellion, refuses to surrender. Enthusiastic British soldiers, convinced that they've surrounded George Washington, bayonet Mercer to death and leave him on the field. But Washington himself arrives shortly thereafter with the main American army. At one point, he channels Julius Caesar, riding out in front of his men on his big white horse and charging up and down the line between the two armies. For a moment, the smoke is so thick that his men lose sight of him and think he's been killed. But somehow he survives making himself a target for the British, and the outnumbered British army turns tail and runs. The Battle of Princeton is another huge morale boost, and another opportunity to capture supplies. But both the British and the Americans are spent. George Washington finally takes up winter quarters in Morristown, New Jersey, while Cornwallis moves his army north to New Brunswick, between Morristown and New York. This period of time, from Christmas Day 1776 through January 3, 1777, 
will become known as the Ten Crucial Days. The Ten Days that Save the American Revolution from Disaster. At this point, the American Army consists of a few thousand Continental Army troops under George Washington, with a smaller force of mixed army and patriot militia further north in New England, and some troops in upstate New York defending against an expected British invasion from Canada. In the South, there's no army at all, just local militias prepared to defend their colonies if the British bring the war back in their direction. Washington now adopts what's called a Fabian strategy. Remember what I said earlier. Preserving the Continental Army is everything. Washington will fight the British when he thinks he has the advantage and will otherwise retreat, keeping his army together at all costs. Simply having an army in the field is a powerful political act, and Washington understands that. But the lopsided nature of the war has an effect that I don't think either side has anticipated. With the British now in control of New York City and the surrounding areas, loyalist citizens from throughout the colonies go there to seek safety. This will happen repeatedly throughout the war when the British forces occupy urban areas. By contrast, patriots are content to remain in the countryside where they are free from British control. This is a lot like what happened in the Chinese Civil War, where the government controlled all the major cities, but Mao's revolutionaries controlled the land between them. And it makes sense. If you're a loyalist, there's no need to arm up and join a militia. Just go where the British troops are and you will be safe. This isn't to say that there are no loyalist militias. There are, and some of them are very effective. Nonetheless, as the British take over cities during the war, they simultaneously weaken their control of the countryside. British plans for 1777 are a mess, and there's a lot of controversy about how, who screws up and when. About the only thing that isn't controversial is that the distance between the Americas and Britain causes delays in communication and makes it hard for all of the leadership to get on the same page. The other thing that is not controversial is the goal of the campaign. The British intend to take control of the Hudson River, Lake George, and Lake Champlain, which will establish a line of British control smack through the center of New York State. This will isolate the patriot-dominated New England colonies in the north from the rest of the colonies in the south, and it will allow the British to focus on beating Washington before they turn north and deal with General Gates's New England troops. Basic divide-and-conquer type stuff, but the devil is in the details. General Howe initially writes to Lord George Germain, the British Secretary of State for the Colonies, to request 10,000 reinforcements. With this force, he can first march north to Albany and, after securing it and control of the Hudson Valley, take the bulk of his army back south to capture Philadelphia, the capital of the United Colonies that's already vulnerable to British attack. Meanwhile, General John Burgoyne suggests that he take over command of the British troops in Quebec 
and marched south through New York to link up with Howe's troops at Albany, completing the division of the colonies. Burgoyne is an aggressive general who you may remember from the Portuguese campaign of the Seven Years' War. While the current commander of troops in Quebec, Guy Carleton, has so far only managed to beat the Americans back from the shores of Lake Champlain. Americans under the command of Benedict Arnold still control Fort Ticonderoga and Lake George, and Burgoyne thinks that he's just the man to root them out. Lord George Germain agrees and puts Burgoyne in charge of the army in Quebec. But while this is going on, General Howe has found out that he's not getting his 10,000 reinforcements right away, so he scraps his plan to march north to Albany and instead decides to focus on attacking Philadelphia. How much Howe and Burgoyne know about each other's plans is controversial, but it seems that when Burgoyne marches south from Quebec, he is fully expecting to meet Howe at Albany. Anyway, there are going to be two campaigns in 1777. The Saratoga Campaign, fought in upstate New York, and the Philadelphia Campaign, fought around Philadelphia. So instead of talking about this chronologically, I'm going to talk about each campaign in turn. But while I'm talking about what's going on in New York, remember that the main Continental Army under George Washington is bogged down trying to defend Philadelphia. General Howe also decides to move his men to Philadelphia by sea rather than land, which means that during critical parts of the campaign in New York, the British commander-in-chief in North America is sailing around and therefore incommunicado. I don't want to get into excruciating detail here because entire books have been written entirely on the Saratoga campaign. I highly recommend American historian Richard M. Ketchum's book, Saratoga, Turning Point of America's Revolutionary War, if you want a deep dive into the subject. Burgoyne heads south from Quebec with a force of 7,000 men and Ketchum describes this force as follows. Quote, In numbers, British and Germans were more or less evenly divided, with 3,981 of the former and 3,116 Brunswick and Hess-Hanau troops for a total of more than 7,000, including artillery. They were similar also in a preponderance of tough, disciplined, experienced troops, the regiments had long traditions of valor and skill, and the Germans were led by officers who had learned their trade under Frederick the Great and Duke Ferdinand of Brunswick. In training and weapons, there was not much to choose between them, but most Germans were severely handicapped by their inability to speak English, which meant that all the communication was largely between officers and in a sort of pidgin French. Most unhappy of all were the unfortunate dragoons, who lacking the horses on which they were trained to fight, would have to traipse through deep woods and abominable roads wearing ridiculous plumed hats and carrying long, straight broadswords that were as useless as they were a hindrance. In almost all respects, the force at Burgoyne's disposal was a superb tactical instrument. In battle, the British infantry was rated at or near the top of the major powers' armies, as was the artillery, and firepower was the essence of that superiority the foot soldier was not expected to be a marksman. 
What was required of him was that he point his musket in the general direction of the enemy and load and fire on command about 15 times in the space of four minutes. When this was executed by ordered ranks of men who were thoroughly drilled in the close order volley, it could shatter and paralyze an enemy, and was usually followed by the bayonet charge, so feared and hated by the rebels. Burgoyne's officers were under orders to inculcate in the men's minds a reliance upon the bayonet, on grounds that while men of half their bodily strength, even cowards, might be their match with the musket, the onset of bayonets in the hands of the valiant is irresistible. If there was a major flaw in the arsenal of these British or German units, it was their dependence on enormous baggage trains. But as long as they were capable of being supplied by water, that might not be a problem. What would happen when they began traveling over land remained to be seen. End quote. Burgoyne launches his attack in late June and quickly captures the American defensive position at Fort Ticonderoga, which controls access to Lake George, on July 6th. A panicked Continental Congress fires Generals Philip Schuler and Arthur St. Clair, who had commanded the defense, and puts General Horatio Gates, George Washington's second-in-command, in charge of the northern theater of the war. While Gates calls for militia and fresh army recruits from surrounding states, Burgoyne continues to advance, winning a series of small victories across upstate New York. But in late July and early August, Burgoyne's supply problem gets more and more serious. Remember, he has now left the waterways and is moving over land. So he sends part of his army east to raid the Continental Army Armory in Bennington, Vermont. What he doesn't know is that Gates has ordered 2,000 men to reinforce Bennington, and Burgoyne ends up losing around 900 of his German troops in the doomed attack. Deep in the American interior, Burgoyne's men have also been relying on local settlers for things as basic as food and draft animals. However, he's been employing Native American auxiliaries as scouts, and these auxiliaries sometimes loot indiscriminately. In one famous incident, on July 27, 1777, a 25-year-old Loyalist woman named Jane McRae is killed and scalped. It's controversial who did the killing. Some accounts say she's killed by a stray bullet from an American rifleman firing at the natives who are merely escorting her and that she is scalped after the fact as a trophy. But General Burgoyne doesn't punish anyone for the scalping, and it's a huge propaganda coup for American patriots who are able to portray the British as subjecting even loyal subjects to random violence. At this time, Burgoyne's army is between Lake George in the north and Albany in the south. This is a rural area even today. There's some beautiful country and historical landmarks and tourist trap towns, but it's not very populated by and large. Back in 1777... This is as close as you can get to the literal middle of nowhere. And in August, Burgoyne receives word that General Howe has sailed south for Philadelphia, leaving General Henry Clinton in command of New York City. Clinton only has 7,000 men, and on paper that's comparable to Burgoyne's army, and he should have no problem marching north to Albany so the two forces can meet up. But in practice... 
Clinton needs to leave a substantial force in New York and the surrounding area. So he's only able to dispatch about 2,000 men north. And even this effort is delayed by poor communication. Clinton's men will take Forts Clinton and Montgomery in early October. These are important positions on the Hudson River near American-controlled West Point, but Clinton's men are continually delayed, and they can't get anywhere near Burgoyne. Clinton famously writes, quote, I fear it bears heavy on Burgoyne. If this campaign does not finish the war, I prophesy that there is an end of British dominion in America. End quote. But we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. In early September, Burgoyne has to make a decision. He's deep in the hinterland, and most of his Native American allies have abandoned him after the defeat at Bennington. He needs to get to a defensible area to make camp for the winter, and the alternatives are to march back north to Fort Ticonderoga or to continue pushing south for Albany. Ever the aggressive general and not wanting to lose progress on the campaign, Burgoyne decides to press on. This might seem too aggressive, but keep in mind that he thinks that there are only a handful of American forces in the area. He has no idea that Horatio Gates has amassed a force of 9,000 Continental Army and militia, with more on their way to their camp at Stillwater, New York, which is a few miles north of Albany. Despite the needs of his own army down by Philadelphia, George Washington has even sent help in the form of a few hundred Pennsylvania riflemen and Major General Benedict Arnold, an aggressive young commander who's already made a name for himself in several small engagements. This puts a numerically superior American army right in the path of Burgoyne's route to Albany. On September 7th, Gates orders his army to march north to a position called Bemis Heights, which is an easily defensible ridge on the west bank of the Hudson River. They have several days to dig in, since without his Native Americans, Burgoyne has few scouts and has to move slowly. It's not until September 18th that the British arrive near the village of Saratoga, about four miles north of the American position, and scouting parties from both armies engage in minor skirmishes before retreating for the night. The American position is very strong on the right. This wing is anchored on the Hudson River, and the Americans, always great at digging in, have already created earth fortifications. But further to the left, they haven't had time to build any fortifications yet. That's where Burgoyne is going to attack, and on the morning of September 19th, Benedict Arnold begs General Gates to let him lead the left wing of the army down off the heights and forward to a wooded area called Freeman's Farm, where the Americans can take advantage of the wooded terrain to put up a stiffer defense. Gates is cautious by nature, and only allows a small reconnaissance in force, consisting primarily of riflemen. These riflemen are able to inflict horrendous casualties on the British by targeting their officers. But the British have too many men in the area for this small group of Americans to hold it. Arnold spends all day urging Gates to commit more troops, but 
Gates only agrees to commit a few hundred men at a time, fearing a larger British assault on the main American position. Gates's hesitancy ultimately results in the British taking Freeman's farm, although they will take 600 casualties compared to relatively light American losses. In his reports, Horatio Gates will make no mention of Benedict Arnold. This is absurd because Arnold himself led the battle and Gates never left his command tent. Arnold is furious. The two get into a heated argument and Gates relieves him of his command. This is one of several snubs that will ultimately cause Arnold to defect to the British later on in the war. After the day's fighting, Burgoyne and his advisors debate the next course of action. They're going to have to attack the Americans, but now that Burgoyne knows he's outnumbered, he decides to wait for General Clinton to come up the Hudson River, which would force Gates to send some of his American troops south to Albany to deal with the threat. But as I already mentioned, Clinton is slow in coming and isn't able to present a threat to Gates' army. This delay proves crucial. By October 7th, it's clear that help is not coming and the American strength has risen to around 12,000 men. Burgoyne's top sub-commander, a German named Baron Friedrich Reitzel, advises him to turn tail and retreat north to Fort Ticonderoga. Burgoyne won't hear it. He's come this far, and he's going to get the army to Albany even if he has to fight through an opposing force that outnumbers him two to one. On the morning of October 7, 1777, Burgoyne personally leads another assault on the American left. Well, it's more of a reconnaissance in force to probe the American defenses, but the problem with a reconnaissance in force is that your enemy is liable to overreact, uh, think it's an actual attack, and send an even larger army after your reconnaissance force, and that's what happens here. The 2,000 or so British who advance towards the American left are soon met by forces dispatched by General Gates, who has been tipped off to the attack by a British deserter. Altogether, more than 8,000 Americans are engaged in the battle. The fighting is hot and heavy. One of Burgoyne's top commanders, General Simon Fraser, is shot dead by an American rifleman. Burgoyne's horse is shot, and two more rounds penetrate his hat and his coat, but he's unwounded. After about an hour and a half of fighting, with 400 men lying dead on the field, the British retreat. What happens next is controversial. According to the traditional account, General Arnold has been champing at the bit all day. He's been yelling at General Gaines and is even drunk by this point. Eventually, he mounts his horse and charges into the action, leading an American attack on the British camp against orders. General Gates even sends out a rider to order him to come back to camp, but this account is colored by post-war American prejudice, primarily against the traitor Benedict Arnold, but also against General Gates, who many Americans viewed as overcautious. But in 2016, a letter surfaced on eBay, written two days after the battle by a camp adjutant named Nathaniel Bockeler, who was in Gates's command tent that day. 
According to his account, Arnold and Gates planned the attack together. Fackler writes, quote, General Arnold says to General Gates it is late in the day, but let me have my men and we will have some fun with them before sunset. End quote. Regardless of which account you choose to believe, Arnold leads the men valiantly, riding his horse along the line of battle and exposing himself to fire. His men work their way between two British defenses to get around behind the outer line of uh, camp defenses, and they then threaten to overrun the entire British camp before sunset puts an end to the attack. Shortly before the end of the battle, Benedict Arnold is shot through the leg. The same shot kills his horse, which falls over on top of him, causing a nasty compound fracture from which it will take him several months to recover. Overnight, General Burgoyne takes a page from George Washington's playbook and makes a big show of lighting a bunch of watchfires along the front of his camp, while in reality his men quietly slip away. The following day, the Americans begin a pursuit, but it's a slow one. Richard Ketchum writes, quote, Gates was painfully slow getting started, but fortunately for him, Burgoyne's army had moved at a snail's pace. The rebel troops drew rations and cooked enough food for four days. The delay gave a much-needed rest to the Continental troops who had borne the brunt of the fighting, and the army's ammunition was replenished. Meanwhile, rain turned the road into a bog, and it was made worse by the retreating British, who burnt most of the buildings as they went and cut away the bridges, according to Lieutenant Thomas Blank of Silly's New Hampshire Regiment. Wherever their wagons or tents or baggage broke down, he went on, they knocked the horses on the head and burnt the baggage. End quote. Burgoyne is able to retreat ten miles north to a fortified position, but he's quickly surrounded by the American army. Gates doesn't attack. This is not necessarily indicative of an overcautious commander. He just knows Burgoyne has nowhere to run. On October 13th, Burgoyne holds a council of war and confers with his remaining senior officers. With supplies running low, he ultimately decides to surrender. The Americans have just captured 6,000 British troops, an entire army. This is a humiliation for the British Empire, and it also means that their campaign has failed. Despite their best efforts, American lines of transport and communication between New England and the rest of the colonies remain intact. The 6,000 men are marched to Boston to be paroled back to England. But when Congress demands that General Burgoyne provide a list of all the men and their names to ensure that they don't break their parole, Burgoyne refuses. So the men are ultimately marched to Virginia, then to Maryland, where they're held until the end of the war. Most of them end up deserting and settling in America anyway, which seems like a better choice than staying in a prison camp. Burgoyne and many officers will eventually be exchanged with the British, but John Burgoyne will never hold a military command again. So much for the Saratoga campaign. 
Now let's talk about what's going on further south. In the spring of 1777, George Washington only has a few thousand troops, and most of them are militia. If General Howe wants to capture Philadelphia, all he has to do is march his men there from New York and take it. After all, it's not like Washington has a whole lot of guys to stop him with at this point. But for some reason, how dithers. Historians and primary sources can't agree on why. Some think he's waiting for more supplies from Europe. Some even suggest, no joke, that William Howe is waiting for the grass to grow higher so he can harvest it and have food for his horses. Whatever the reason, Howe remains in New York through the spring and into mid-June. This gives George Washington and the Continental Congress time to raise a new army. 10,000 men plus additional militia units. And if you'll remember, this army is located in New Jersey, directly between New York and Philadelphia. Once again, this is an entire campaign with several battles and skirmishes, and I don't want to get bogged down in a blow-by-blow account of the fighting. The long and short of it is that General Howe briefly takes his army into New Jersey in June in an attempt to lure Washington out of his strong defensive position and force a battle. But Washington doesn't bite, so Howe decides not to go through Washington's army but to go around it. He sails 15,000 men from New York City south to Chesapeake Bay, and lands them in late August, about 55 miles south of Philadelphia. Washington hasn't even left New Jersey yet, because he didn't know where Howe was going. But when word arrives of a British fleet in the Chesapeake Bay, he quickly marches south and occupies a defensive position near the town of Chadsford, Pennsylvania. He positions his army along the east bank of the Brandywine Creek, which the British will have to cross to get to Philadelphia. On September 11, 1777, Howe fakes a frontal assault, but sends the bulk of his army far to the north to cross the creek at a different bridge. Then they come down and hit the Americans from the side. Taken completely by surprise, Washington's men begin to flee and it's only thanks to a disciplined rearguard action led by General Nathaniel Green that the army is able to escape. In this battle, called the Battle of Brandywine, the Americans aren't just hindered by poor intelligence. Most of the men who fought in 1776 have gone home, and the bulk of the army consists of new enlistees who are fighting in their first real battle. By contrast, the British troops are veterans. So Washington is trying to train a new army while using it to defend the nation's capital. The Continental Congress isn't going to wait. Following news of Washington's defeat, they flee Philadelphia first to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and then even further west to the town of York, Pennsylvania. If that's not enough... The federated nature of the new country is making it hard to procure funding. Every state wants to contribute as little as possible to the war effort while receiving support from the other states. But the end result is that Congress is constantly short on funds, 
which means Washington is short on funds. In one letter, he writes to John Hancock, the president of the Continental Congress, quote, The strongest reason against being able to make a forced march is the want of shoes. Messrs. Carroll, Chase, and Penn, members of Congress, who were some days with the Army, can inform Congress in how deplorable a situation the troops are for want of that necessary article. At least 1,000 men are barefooted and have performed the marches in that condition. End quote. Over the next two weeks, the British and American armies fight a number of small skirmishes as Howe tries to get around Washington's army. On September 16th, the two sides almost have another major field battle near the town of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Washington sets up a main line of battle, prepared to receive the British attack, but at the last minute he decides to shift his army to a better position, and as they're doing this, it suddenly starts pouring rain, and much of the Continental Army's gunpowder is waterlogged and useless. So are the muskets belonging to both armies. Remember, these are flintlock muskets they're firing with. A, a little bit of water gets into that firing pan, and you've got to dry your musket out. So, without guns, some German soldiers armed with swords charge and capture a few dozen Americans, and Washington ends up withdrawing before the rain ends a day and a half later. On September 26, 1777, Howe's army marches into Philadelphia unopposed. However, he still needs to supply the city and the army, and the rebels have put defenses along the Delaware River to interrupt shipping. These include spiked wooden frames that have been dumped in the water to block ships uh, at the urging of Benjamin Franklin, and all this junk takes time to clear. And in the interim, Washington makes an unsuccessful attack on the British at Germantown, which is now a neighborhood in Philadelphia, but at the time is a suburb about five miles north. Following the defeat at Germantown, Washington draws further back into Pennsylvania, hoping to distract General Howe from clearing the river defenses, but Howe doesn't bite. The toughest defenses to capture are a pair of American forts on the banks of the Delaware River just south of Philadelphia. These are Fort Mifflin on the Pennsylvania side and Fort Mercer on the New Jersey side. Cannons at these forts are able to fire at anything that moves on the water, including British shipping, and it takes until mid-November for Howe's men to occupy both forts, at which point Philadelphia is finally secure in British hands. After securing Philadelphia, Howe marches west deeper into Pennsylvania to confront Washington. From December 5th through 8th, they engage in a series of skirmishes, but the Americans are dug in, and Howe can't find a way to attack them without taking heavy losses, so he withdraws to Philadelphia to set up winter quarters. Washington, in turn, has been conferring with his advisors about where to set up his own camp. They ultimately settle on Valley Forge, an industrial town near the banks of the Schuylkill River, which flows southeast through Pennsylvania until it meets the Delaware River at Philadelphia. This 
geographic position makes Valley Forge an easy area to resupply, and it also prevents the British from using the river to push further into Pennsylvania because they would have to go right past the Americans. The town is on an elevated position, which makes it easily defensible. The forges and other industrial facilities in the area will make it easy to repair equipment, and the large open areas near town provide space for drilling and training. Despite Valley Forge's advantageous position and the stunning American victory in the Saratoga campaign, the winter of 1777 through 1778 is often considered the low point for the Continental Army. The army is constantly underfunded, and shortages of food lead to starvation, malnutrition, and disease. Over the course of the winter, more than a thousand of Washington's men die to a combination of these conditions. At one point, Washington has to personally go to Congress to demand blankets for his men, many of whom are curling up in dirt-floored huts with nothing but their coats. And to be clear, it isn't that Congress is unwilling to provide money. We already talked about the fact that every individual state is hesitant to provide funding to the government. They'd rather let the other states do it. But Congress has also issued its own money, the Continental Dollar, and they have been printing these dollars nonstop. So by this point, they're virtually worthless. All too often, when Washington tries to buy food from local farmers, they refuse to accept the hyperinflated currency. Worse, many sell their foods to the British instead, since the British are paying in pounds sterling. Ultimately, American quartermasters have to resort to impounding food from area farms and paying the farmers with IOUs, which, as you can imagine, is not a popular move with the locals. This is also a tough time for George Washington as an individual, on a personal level. Many in Congress are disappointed at his military performance so far. One of his own subordinates, an Irish-born Frenchman named Thomas Conway, is trying to have him removed, if only to secure his own promotion. Thomas Conway is a brigadier general, and he wants to be promoted to the superior rank of Major General, but Washington won't promote him. So Conway goes to Congress and threatens to resign if he's not promoted, and they promote him over Washington's objections. In response, Washington tells Congress that if they keep going over his head, he will resign. Conway then writes a letter to General Horatio Gates in New York. In it, he writes, quote, Heaven has been determined to save your country, or a weak general and bad counselors would have ruined it. End quote. Obviously, he's referring to Washington, and he's saying that Gates should be commander-in-chief instead. But one of Gates's aides repeats this section of the letter when he's had a few drinks at a tavern, and an officer who supports Washington sends a letter of his own to tell Washington what's going on. Washington then writes a letter to Conway telling him that he knows he's been talking with Gates and what he's saying. 
The following affair is known as the Conway Cabal, taken from Thomas Conway's name. In his book, Washington, the Indispensable Man, American historian James Thomas Flexner writes, quote, By now, an experienced politician was gathering up the various strands of opposition to Washington. Thomas Mifflin had been one of Washington's four first advisors. He had felt in himself great potentialities as a warrior, and his influence on Congress had brought him high rank. But he was a hysterical soldier, and Washington had kept him dealing with supply as quartermaster general. Finally, he had hightailed from the army, leaving Washington with no quartermaster general. Mifflin realized that Washington's magic was still so great that Congress would not vote to discharge him. Better not to raise any definite issue, but to put Washington in a position which would force him to resign. Towards this end, Mifflin and Richard Henry Lee perverted two suggestions Washington himself had made. Washington had wished to have a semi-permanent board of war substituted for the ever-shifting congressional committees that supplied the army, and he had asked that he be empowered to appoint as inspector general an experienced foreign officer who would help him establish a uniform system of drill and maneuver. Mifflin and Lee changed the conception of the board of war. Far from being limited to supplying the army, it was to have top military authority, outranking the commander-in-chief. And the inspector general would not just be an advisor on European technical skills. He was to supervise all Washington's commands and acts, reporting directly to the board of war. It was now only necessary to man this structure with the right people. The president of the board of war, who was informed unofficially that his mission was the total reform and regulation of Washington's army, was, of course, Gates. Mifflin put himself on the board, which he filled with other critics of Washington. But the real stroke of genius was the choice of the Inspector General. Washington's enemy, Conway, was advanced to Major General and appointed to rule over him. Mifflin managed to get all this through Congress, not because that body was hostile to Washington, but because no one paid any attention. The watchword, until Washington's letter of resignation lay safely in hand, had to be hush. Mifflin was thus greatly concerned when Washington's letter to Conway revealed that information was leaking. Whether by chance or by expert strategy, Washington had given his opponents no hint as to the means by which he had been informed concerning Conway's correspondence with Gates. Mifflin assumed that some agent of the commander-in-chief's, perhaps Hamilton, had secretly raided Gates' files. He warned Gates. Gates took it for granted that his files had actually been tampered with. He wrote Washington, sending copies to Mifflin and officially to Congress, a letter in which he, by clear implication, accused Washington of instigating dishonorable acts. Washington thereupon revealed his source as the blabbering of Gates' own aid. Conway was soon also engaged in public controversy. When he had appeared at Valley Forge, immensely pleased with himself and bearing his commissions from the Board of War, Washington used a technicality to brush him aside. Conway thereupon wrote Washington two insulting letters. 
by mocking the commander-chief as an amateur soldier. I do not pretend, sir, to be a consummate general, but an old sailor knows more about ships than an admiral who has never been to sea. Conway, in effect, claimed superiority for all the European volunteers over the Native American officers. What Mifflin had hoped would be a subtle maneuver behind the scenes had now come most gaudily into the light of day. Rumor buzzed through the army camps, galloped from crossroad to crossroad to report that Washington had been insulted, that an underhand effort was being made to force him to resign. Men who had been passionate in criticism of Washington flew to his defense with twice the passion. End quote. Both General Gates and Mifflin publicly disavow Conway, and Washington's position is more secure than ever. Uncharacteristically, Washington seems to let his emotions get the better of him and encourages his supporters to challenge Gates, Mifflin, and Conway to duels. Colonel James Wilkinson, the aide who had drunkenly blurted out the contents of Conway's letter to Gates, actually challenges Gates and the duel is only called off when Gates cries and apologizes. Another officer, a good friend of Washington's named General John Cadwaller challenges Mifflin to a duel, but Mifflin refuses. Cadwaller does duel Conway, and his bullet passes through Conway's mouth and out the back of his neck, nearly killing him. While recuperating, Conway writes a letter of apology to Washington, which Washington does not answer. He then quietly resigns from the American army and returns to France. After this incident, George Washington remains unchallenged as the supreme leader of the Continental Army. So much for 1777 on the battlefield. But remember, the American Revolution is about politics even more than it's about strategy and tactics. The United Colonies have declared independence, but what does that even mean? Did they intend to become 13 sovereign nations? Is the Continental Congress ruling over one new nation? Or is this something else entirely? They need to figure this out. This is not the first time Americans have confronted this question. Back in 1754, Delegates from the then 11 colonies met in Albany, New York to try and hammer out an alliance or at least a trade and neutrality agreement with the Native Americans. This is at the beginning of the French and Indian War, and the British Board of Trade actually encourages the move. While in New York, senior Pennsylvania delegate Benjamin Franklin spends time with the Iroquois and studies their confederated system of government. When the Albany Congress meets, Franklin proposes a similar federative alliance of colonies. It's to have the power to negotiate trade agreements, raise army and naval forces, and, yes, directly tax the colonists. And it's to be ruled by a grand council of delegates elected by the individual colonies with a president appointed by the king. The plan will never get off the ground, not a single one of the colonial assemblies would approve it. 
they see any kind of pan-colonial government, even a weak one, as a threat to their own political rights. Without approval from the assemblies, the British Board of Trade doesn't bother presenting the plan to the king. Benjamin Franklin would later argue that had his plan been adopted, the American Revolution could have been avoided, saying, quote, It now seems probable that if the foregoing plan or something like it had been adopted and carried into execution, the subsequent separation of the colonies from the mother country might not so soon have happened, nor the mischief suffered on both sides have occurred, perhaps during another century. For the colonies, if so united, would have really been, as they then thought themselves, sufficient for their own defense, and being trusted with it, as by the plan, an army from Britain for that purpose would have been unnecessary. The pretenses for framing the Stamp Act would not have existed, nor the other projects for drawing a revenue from America to Britain by Acts of Parliament, which were the cause of the breach, and attended such a terrible expense of blood and treasure, so that the different parts of the empire might still have remained in peace and union. End quote. In 1775, when the Continental Congress meets after the battles of Lexington and Concord, Franklin once again presents his plan, this time calling it the Articles of Confederation. But independence has not yet been declared, and Congress is leery of setting up a government at a time when many members of Congress still hope to reconcile with the British crown. Fast forward to June 12, 1776. A day after Congress establishes the Committee of Five to write the Declaration of Independence, they establish the lesser-known Committee of Thirteen to write a constitution. This committee is chaired by John Dickinson, who dusts off Franklin's Articles of Confederation and modifies them through several drafts, trying to reach a consensus with the other members of the committee. Dickinson is a Pennsylvania congressman who you may remember from last episode as the only Congress member not to vote in favor of independence. Well, this is why. Dickinson thinks it's absurd to declare independence without first adopting a constitution. Otherwise, who is declaring independence, and by what authority are they doing it? Incidentally, it's Dickinson who actually names the United States. Franklin's draft called the new country the United Colonies of North America, but this no longer makes any sense. They're not colonies anymore, and well, North America seems overlong, so Dickinson coins the name United States of America. Dickinson's Articles of Confederation differ from Franklin's in a few ways. For one thing, they scrap the idea of a president appointed by the king, which again makes sense since this is supposed to be the constitution for a new independent country. Instead, the Congress is supposed to appoint a committee of states with one representative from each state, and this committee will choose the president and members of the cabinet. For another thing, the new Articles of Confederation explicitly guarantee the civil rights and liberties that have traditionally been part of British law. 
This was unnecessary in Franklin's draft because the United Colonies would have remained part of the British Empire. Unfortunately, after Dickinson's resignation from Congress, the civil rights protections are dropped and they aren't restored until the Bill of Rights is adopted in 1791. The Articles of Confederation empower Congress to do specific, limited things. Congress can negotiate trade agreements, declare war, sign peace treaties, and raise an army. Other powers are left to the individual states, and even for Congress to act on its limited powers requires the unanimous consent of all states, and you can guess how often that happens. Curiously, the Articles explicitly state that Canada is free to become part of the United States if they want to, without requiring a vote of Congress. Spoiler alert, Canada does not take them up on the offer. There's a big problem with the Articles of Confederation, though. Congress is specifically not authorized to levy taxes. The government is to be funded entirely by voluntary contributions from the individual states. So you run into a free rider problem where every state wants the benefit of having a federal government, an army, and the other things a real country needs, but each state also wants to contribute as little as possible. If this sounds like an unstable form of government, you're not wrong. Just about the only thing the 13 colonies can agree on at this time is that they want independence. But if they're going to win independence, they need to present a united front. Virginia becomes the first state to ratify the Articles of Confederation on December 16, 1777. Connecticut, Georgia, New York, Rhode Island, and South Carolina sign in February of 1778. Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Pennsylvania follow in March. North Carolina signs in April, New Jersey in November, and Delaware in February of 1779. Maryland is the last holdout and doesn't sign until February of 1781 when British troops are threatening Baltimore and Maryland desperately needs help. Almost as soon as the American War for Independence ends, it will become obvious that the country needs a new constitution, and we'll get to that in a later episode, but it's worth noting that many of the elements in the current American constitution are already in place. For example, the Articles of Confederation include a clause that reads, quote, Full faith and credit shall be given in each of these states to the records, acts, and judicial proceedings of the courts and magistrates of every other state. End quote. Compare that to today's full faith and credit clause, which reads, quote, Full faith and credit shall be given in each state to the public acts, records, and judicial proceedings of every other state, and the Congress may by general laws prescribe the manner in which such acts, records, and proceedings shall be proved and the effect of thereof. End quote. It's just the same thing, but a little more fleshed out. I also want to talk about the other political aspect of the revolution, and that's foreign policy. 
Congress is already in talks with France and receiving surreptitious French aid, delivered by Dutch merchants and other smugglers in order for France to retain plausible deniability. But Congress wants more. If at all possible, they want French officers to join the American army, on an official basis, not just an unofficial one. America is desperately short on experienced military leaders. George Washington is one of the most experienced guys they've got, and he'd never led an army in battle until after the revolution broke out. In late 1776, French King Louis XVI gives his permission for several French officers to go and assist the Americans, but quickly revokes his consent when the British tell him that this would be considered an act of war. This does not sit well with one young officer, the Marquis de Lafayette. Only 19 years old in 1776, the young nobleman nonetheless impresses American delegate Silas Dean, and in his conversations with Dean, Lafayette in turn becomes enthusiastic about the American cause. Not to be deterred by his own king's orders, Lafayette sets sail for America, before having second thoughts and returning back. But when he gets back to France, a senior army commander, Charles-Francois de Broglie, tells him that King Louis has changed his mind and granted permission for him to go to America after all. As it turns out, this is a lie. De Broglie is another American sympathizer, as are many in the French public. And just to clarify, for most of these French-American sympathizers, this has nothing to do with ideas of liberty or self-determination or anything like that. The French have recently lost not one but two wars to the British, and many see this opportunity to support the American rebels as payback time. Anyway, Lafayette turns around once again and ultimately arrives in South Carolina on June 13, 1777, near the beginning of the Saratoga campaign and before the Philadelphia campaign really kicks off. He travels north to Philadelphia to meet with Congress, and he sort of just walks into a session of Congress and says, Here I am. I think you will be well pleased with my service. This doesn't sit too well with Congress. First off, Lafayette isn't the first European or even French officer to travel to America. And all the previous ones have been extremely arrogant, basically telling the Americans that they're here to show them how a real army fights. Second, nobody in Congress even knows who he is because his letter of introduction from Benjamin Franklin hasn't arrived yet. Franklin, who seems to be everywhere in this war, is now in France acting as the American envoy, and when his letter arrives a few days later, things get smoothed over. And on July 31, 1777, Congress votes to commission Lafayette as a major general in the Continental Army. That evening, Lafayette finds himself in George Washington's tent, being introduced to the American leader. He immediately impresses Washington. For one thing, 
he has nothing personally to gain from joining the Continental Army. Unlike the French as a whole, who are helping the American effort out of self-interest, Lafayette seems to genuinely care about the American cause. Washington is also impressed by his humility. One of the first things Lafayette says to him is, I am here to learn, not to teach. The two are both Freemasons, which gives them an additional connection. And this connection between them is almost instantaneous. Lafayette looks up to Washington and sees him as a role model. Meanwhile, the childless Washington sees Lafayette as the son he's never had, and they soon take on a sort of father-son relationship. Lafayette is tested almost immediately. At the Battle of Brandywine, a group of American soldiers on a critical part of the line begins to retreat. This has the potential to start a disorganized rout of everybody that could spell the end of the Continental Army. Lafayette runs straight into the action, and although at this time he barely speaks any English, he manages to rally the men and stop the retreat. For his trouble, he's shot in the leg, and when Washington finds out he's been injured, tells his medical staff to take care of Lafayette as if he were Washington's own son. Lafayette spends the next few months recuperating before being given command of a division in November. On November 25, 1777, he would distinguish himself again. During a reconnaissance mission in New Jersey, he's leading 350 men when they spot a German encampment with around 400 soldiers in it. He scouts the area himself, personally walking within range of the German lookouts in order to get the lay of the land. He then leads his men in a surprise attack on the camp, forcing the Germans to grab whatever they can and run back to the main British army. At an American cost of one killed and five wounded, 40 Germans are killed or wounded and an additional 20 are captured. It's more of a skirmish than a battle, but Lafayette has shown that he's willing to take the initiative and aggressively attack the enemy. Shortly thereafter, he and his men join George Washington back at Valley Forge. Once again, he has the opportunity to show his character. A group of congressmen and generals involved in the Conway Cabal invite Lafayette to a meeting where they discuss various ways they might be able to get rid of Washington. At the end of the evening, they raise a toast to Congress. But as everyone is about to drink, Lafayette adds, and to General Washington. Not only does this tell everybody where his loyalties lie, but it puts them in the awkward position of drinking to General Washington. We'll leave Lafayette in Valley Forge for now, but his part of our story is far from over. Remember, he's a French aristocrat. He has connections, and he's been writing back to France about what capable fighters the Americans are. Between these reports and the American success at Saratoga, where they captured the whole British army, King Louis XVI is finally convinced. On February 6, 1778, France formally recognizes American independence, 
signs a trade treaty, and signs a treaty of alliance. However, the treaty does not become public knowledge until the French ambassador to Britain informs them of its existence on March 13th. And on March 17, 1778, Britain declares war on France. It's impossible to exaggerate how important this is. Until now, while the Americans may have been capable of giving the British a bloody nose now and then, they stood no real chance of winning a prolonged conflict. But now they're not fighting alone. They have the support of the world's most powerful land army and a navy that, while not nearly as impressive as the British fleet, is capable of giving the British trouble from time to time. The Americans can hold things together for a few more years. They might just win this thing. In the middle of all this, a renowned Prussian officer named Baron von Steuben is on his way to the colonies. The Prussian army is to the 18th century as the American army is to the 21st century. Better trained, better disciplined, better drilled than pretty much anybody else. And von Steuben is one of the Prussians' best having served as an aide-de-camp to Frederick the Great during the Seven Years' War. Driven out of Prussia due to rumors that he's gay, uh, he is, uh, his career is abruptly cut short at the rank of captain. Looking for a new job, he flees to Paris, where the French Minister of War introduces him to Benjamin Franklin. Franklin is impressed by the Prussian captain and writes him a letter of recommendation to George Washington that mistranslates the word captain as lieutenant general, further burnishing his resume. This is such a basic error, Generalleutnant instead of Hauptmann, that it seems Franklin does it on purpose to play up von Steuben's resume. Further evidence of this is the fact that Franklin intentionally leaves out any mention of von Steuben's homosexuality, obscuring the reason for his dismissal from the Prussian army. Von Steuben departs in late summer and arrives in New Hampshire on September 26, 1777. But he and his men have gotten bad information and they have arrived dressed in British redcoats uniforms. Uh, they're immediately arrested, uh, but the confusion is soon cleared up, and they pass through Boston on December 1st, and then finally arrive in Valley Forge on February 23rd, 1778. Von Steuben quickly impresses Washington with his military acumen. As it turns out, Washington is aware of the rumors about von Steuben, but he needs to win a war, and he couldn't care less who his officers sleep with, so he appoints von Steuben as Provisional Inspector General of the Continental Army. Upon receiving his appointment, von Steuben quickly tours the camp and orders changes in layout and sanitation that will be the world standard as late as World War I. It's tough to overstate how important these reforms are. 
If you remember from last episode, the American camps have been a disorganized mess, with individual militia companies setting up their own tents and digging latrine pits without any consideration for other companies around them, and this has made the American camps into disease-ridden sex pits. No more. The army is to encamp in an orderly way, with latrines kept well clear of the rest of the camp as well as from any drinking water sources. Von Steuben also selects 120 of the best troops to be an honor guard for Washington. He trains them in the latest Prussian drill methods and then appoints them as trainers for the rest of the army. During his training, von Steuben marches up and down the ranks, continually cursing at the troops in German and French. When this does not have the desired effect, he appoints one of his aides to translate his cursing into English. This drilling is just as important as changing the camp layout. Battles in the 18th century are usually won by the side that gets in the first volley and fires subsequent volleys faster. So not only is it important to have a drill for loading and firing, it's equally important for the men to be able to maneuver, wheel about in formation, and dress their ranks quickly so they can get off that first volley. On May 5th, 1778... Congress will give von Steuben an official commission as a major general in the army and makes his position of inspector general official. Von Steuben immediately sets to work and will ultimately uncover a number of schemes by congressmen and others to siphon off military supplies for their own profits. By some estimates, he saves the U.S. $600,000 in material. That's nearly $17 million in 2023 money. In 1779, von Steuben will publish Regulations for the Order and Discipline of the Troops of the United States, which comes to be known as the Blue Book, the very first U.S. Army manual. Von Steuben's reforms will eventually turn the ragtag Continental Army into a force that can contend with the best militaries of Europe. With their new French allies, this army will now set out to do what everyone said was impossible. Throw off British rule for good. And that's why it's relevant. Hello again. It's me, Dan. This is a friendly reminder that if you're only listening to the audio podcast, you're not getting all of my content. I also have a Patreon channel called Dan's War College. Each month, I break down a historical battle, weapon, or tactic and explain how it works. This is a video series with maps, graphics, and other helpful visual aids, and you can get it all for just $5 a month. We've done 10 episodes so far, 
and some of these have even been patron requests, because I do take requests. You can find the link to the Patreon channel in the episode description. And if you're on the fence, episode 5 of Dan's War College is currently publicly available, so you can check that one out and get a taste for what the channel is like. Of course, not everybody wants to spend $5 a month for a monthly video, and who can blame you? There are so many channels and subscription services out there that it's just impossible to sign up for all of them. But if you still want to support the show, you can share it with your friends or post a link on social media. Shows like this grow by word of mouth, and if the channel's growth is any indication, you guys are great advertisers. Thanks so much, and please keep it up, and if your podcast service lets you leave a review, please do so. If you want to follow Relevant History on social media, you can find links in the description for that as well. Or just go to Twitter and find at Dan Toller Podcast. That's Dan, T-O-L-E-R, Podcast. If you want to send me an email you can write to dantollerpodcast at gmail.com. That's dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast at gmail.com. Tell me what you liked, or if you think I got something wrong, tell me that too. You can also visit the show's website at dantollerpodcast.com. Once again, that's dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast.com. Thanks for listening.